Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, I'm talking with Assistant Professor of New Testament, Joel Kim. He joined the faculty in 2005 after 11 years in pastoral ministry. He is completing his Ph.D., in the history of biblical interpretation, and you can read some of Joel's work online at wscal.edu slash faculty. Hi, Joel, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. You have an interesting background, uh, in some ways, a little different than than uh, some of us here. Uh, where were you born, and uh, how did you get uh, where you are now? We'll, we'll work through that. Well, I, I was born in a city called Incheon in South Korea which is the place where Douglas MacArthur's landing took place. And uh, when I was about 10 years old, my father, who was actually stu- studying uh, in the States uh, for his THM at that point, having graduated with an MDiv uh, at a Presbyterian seminary in Korea, actually brought the family over, and he started his ministry in America in 1982. That's when I actually came to the States. Well, what was that like? I mean, starting life in one culture and... Uh, making a transition to what must have been a remarkably different culture. You're changing languages, you're changing expectations, changing geography. Uh, how did that go? According to my parents, uh, when I was told, I think we left on June 8th, I was told that we were leaving. I'm one of five kids, second oldest, but the first boy. So I had, I had certain responsibilities. You just got a memo or what? No, no, no. They just told us one day, sat us down and said, we're going over to the States. We're going to take you out of school. We were taken out of school around May. For about a month, we traveled and then we left for the States. When he told me, um, I think all of us were quite serious. Uh, the youngest was two. The oldest was 11. And supposedly, the only question I asked after a bit of silence was, Dad, um, do they have milk in America? That, that's the <laughs> and, story I'm told. And did they? Uh, and, and they did, obviously. And okay. uh, I love milk and bananas. And he promised me that they had both. And so according to my parents, the transition was fairly easy, at least convincing us to come over. Yeah. Now, having come over, uh, the changes were drastic, no doubt. Um, languages were difficult, although I'm sure it was much more difficult for my parents dragging five kids uh, with financial limitations and language limitations, the adjustments were quite great. But for kids of our age, um, the language acquisition is actually fairly quick. I was in, I think, English as a second language class for about nine months or so Mm -hmm. and went straight into the regular class afterwards. Not because my English was great, but sufficient enough to actually uh, carry on a conversation in class. I still remember our first ESL class because... Uh, there is this um, uh, student who happens to be Chinese, now Chinese-American, who sat next to me about a year or two older, who talked incessantly. And for those of those people who know me, you would think they were kindred spirits. But at least at that point in time, <laughs> I didn't talk as much. And he would talk and talk and talk. And I came home that night. I asked my father, who's been here longer, I said, Dad, is there something I can say to that person in English so that that person will stop talking? He thought for a second. He said, uh, why don't you try saying be quiet, which was very nice. And I, 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 I studied that. I practiced that all night. But for a foreigner coming in, trying to say that word was not very easy, or yeah. that phrase. So I said the next morning, I said, Dad, 
is there something else I can say that's a little <laughs> bit easier? And he thought for a second. I don't think he understood exactly the significance, or at least how this might sound to someone else. He said, uh, why don't you try saying, shut up? And I thought, oh, that's so much easier, harsher <laughs> sound. I went to class, um, and he started talking again. And so I chose my moment, and being a civilized person, I said, shut up, please. And the well, that's person, good. You yeah, softened the blow. I, very much so, and the person began to beat me up afterwards. But <laughs> that, that's a different story altogether. So we have recollections of some of those difficulties, but I think the major burden of the transition uh, uh, was upon my parents, at least for us. It was a fun change to some degree. Food was very novel, so it got some, you know, it, it, it took some time getting used to. Language was very difficult. I still remember my sisters crying mm -hmm. every day, having come home from school, not making any friends initially because they couldn't communicate. But aside from those memories, uh, we had a fairly uneventful transition. Well, yeah, that was one of the questions I had as you were talking is, did, did you make friends and, and how did that go? We made friends, primarily kids who are like us. We were in Los Angeles at okay. that point. We, when we immigrated, we were in L.A. for about a year before we moved up to San Jose. And in L.A., the Korean-American population is very large. And so you made friends primarily with kids who are in similar situation, kids uh, who came over to the States recently who spoke Korean. And so, yes, you made friends, but primarily friends who were very much like you. Uh, things changed quite a bit when we moved up to San Jose, where uh, finding a Korean in your class was very difficult. And so basically at that point, you were thrown into a situation that was quite a bit more different. So in a, in a way, your initial experience was a, a sort of a transitional experience, and then you were sort of plunged in, in, a, in an immersion experience it, it, it's, in I mean, San Jose. It, it was never intended that way, I don't think. But my, it worked my, out that way. Right. My father was pastoring a church, uh, in L.A. And, and decided that his calling was truly to church plant. And mm. so when we moved up to San Jose, only about 400 miles up, I can recall that when we moved in my, uh, you know, I think I was about fifth grade then, I think there was only one other Korean American in my whole grade. Mm. And so the transition there was quite a bit different because now you're immersed uh, in the language and the culture. You really had no fallback position. And you, you, in in a sense, you're changing cultures again because Northern California, uh, the Bay Area, that's a different culture from Los Angeles. True, but you know, I don't think I really recognize the fine distinctions in terms of cultures or ethos of a particular area. So, as a child, I I, I don't think I was so sophisticated in that er in in that sense, except for the fact that you know we're we're moving to a new place, new language which is the primary the focus of the language, and no one really to fall back upon. Your dad's a pastor, and so you were raised in a pastor's home. Right. Uh, sometimes that leads kids to, you know, sons to want to become pastors, and sometimes it leads sons to not want to become pastors. Oh, right. So how, how was it for you? Um, I hate resorting back to all the old stories, but they're the more fun ones anyhow, than the more contemporary ones. Oh, we've I, got some fun contemporary uh, stories too. <laughs> which we'll keep to ourselves, okay. obviously, but... Um, I, I guess when I was about four or five, still in Korea, uh, one of the deacons came up, and my mom's telling me this story. Um, he asked, so Joel, and my name wasn't Joel at that point, but Joel, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And having grown up in a pastor's family, I guess I answered something like, I want to be a pastor. And the person asked, why do you want to be a pastor? And 
the best reason I gave at that time was because I wanted to use the microphone. Uh, for some reason, that in my mind oh, was the goal that I, I so this is, the, you know, having a microphone in front of my face is really, truly a, a dream a fulfillment yeah. of my dreams. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think there was an awareness that this is what I want to do, at least at an early age, perhaps just because that's all I saw. Um, it is true, like you said, you know, it seems like there's no middle ground for PKs, for pastor's kids. Either they turn out really good and become pastors, or they turn out really bad. Or at least that seems to be the, the, the common storyline. And I think my parents did always think that it would be nice to see one of their kids become a pastor. I do have a younger brother. Mm. Um, but they never expressed it. And I think just my personality uh, is such that if they did strongly push me one direction, I might have bolted the other way. Mm. But, but I think they prayerfully watch me grow and, and hoping that I would uh, go in that direction. But for me, it was just, I, I really don't know how to do anything else. Um, and that's part of my problem. When did it become clear to you that you know, th- this is something I need to do? Uh, I think I can say with a fair bit of confidence that, that it was in the back of my mind for a long time. But And, and, and in fact, um, in, in my senior year in high school, because they knew that I was a um, uh, pastor's child, and 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 there was discussions about what I might do. And some of the teachers, in fact, my AP English teacher was a Scottish Presbyterian, and and she uh, she knew or heard that I was thinking about possibly going to seminary. And so when we were uh, graduating, she gave me a hug and she whispered in my ear. And we never talked about our faiths before, mm-hmm. um, but she said, uh, "Crucifixion is no fiction, Joel. Uh, teach that." Or something to that effect. I oh, remember that. And so I, I know I talked about it and discussed it uh, quite a bit in my life. But I think the real conviction came probably middle of my college years when you get involved on ca- in campus ministries, church work on the weekends, and you come to realize you have a certain set of gifts and passions. Uh, my gift sets point toward, I, I don't know, I don't have any manual skills at all. Um, I get queasy with blood. Um, <laughs> I can testify uh, to that. Yeah, definitely so. And and so teaching is something I really enjoyed, and I participated in quite a bit uh, during college. At the same time, my passion was to study the Word, and the thought of bringing those two things together where you are able to teach and, and study the Word and be supported for it uh, was uh, something that was incredibly um, satisfying for me. So you always had a pretty clear vocational path. You, were you ever tempted to do, to do something else? No, I mean, even if I were to have, you know, deviated and gone elsewhere, I would imagine it would have been in a teaching profession of some mm. kind. Really, I really have a limited set of gifts in life. And I think that's <laughs> where I would have ended up where I'm talking a lot with a microphone, um, yeah. uh, teaching people. But that's really what I do enjoy in the first place. But... Uh, it just came together for me during college years that this is something I really want to do for the rest of my life. So it wasn't one of those dramatic or emotional moments. It was really just coming to the conviction that all my life and my experiences have been pointing toward this end. And me coming to recognize uh, that in my life was, I think, a major factor. So you found yourself in university studying? I was studying medieval history. Uh Yeah, that was my uh, major. Uh, loved my professors. Um, we had a couple great medievalists. Um, uh, you know, uh, 
they're so great, I can't remember all their names now, but Patrick Geary was one. Uh, who was medievalist at UCLA, mm-hmm. and, and we just had a grand old time. And you did classics? Right. Uh, I, I took uh, Greek and Latin uh, during college. and Part of it was a language requirement, although mm-hmm. I, I fulfilled some of it in high school, but part of it was I knew I was going to go to seminary, so I wanted to get some languages out of the way. And uh, Latin and Greek seemed like the, the best two languages to prepare myself for any future work that I might do. And so I took uh, two years of Greek, two years of Latin, and uh, and uh, and got involved in early church history as well as Greco-Roman history. And so uh, you know, taught a few classes and studies in that direction. When you're thinking about seminary now as an, as an undergraduate, uh, did, did you look at a lot of other seminaries, or how did you work through that? I was raised in a Christian Reformed church home. Um, I, I was a CRC member. And uh, as a CRC person, one seminary that comes immediately to mind is Calvin Theological Seminary. Everyone was expected to go. And then, of course, uh, my father, who was trained in a Presbyterian seminary in Korea, the school of choice, uh, at least amongst the Korean Americans or Koreans in Korea, uh, was still Westminster Seminary if you were a Reformed person. Now, if you're not Reformed, it doesn't count as much, but Westminster Seminary. And by this point, I had found out that not only was there a campus in Philly, but there was a, a, a campus with a history that's uh, directly attached uh, to that school mm-hmm. in California. So um, at least in college, I was beginning to think about coming to either uh, going to either Calvin or one of the Westminsters at that point. But one, I think a positive influence on me during that time was we, in a, a campus ministry that I was involved in, we had a number of Westminster, uh, California faculty members come by and visit. Mm. So Steve Ball came by and spoke. Uh, Godfrey came by and spoke a few times. Um, uh, Joy Piper, who's then on faculty, came by and spoke. The interaction was very helpful to me. And so I got to know the school much better as an undergrad than I think most students get a chance to know about a school. And so over time, it, it became pretty clear that you know, I didn't want to travel too far. I'm a homebody to begin with, and and so San Diego was close enough. It also uh, afforded me opportunities to serve in a in Korean American church contexts, mm-hmm. whereas Grand Rapids uh, n- not as easy for that. Uh, and so it allowed me to stay in church churches that I knew well and serve in that capacity. So it was a fairly easy decision by the time my senior year rolled around. For those who don't know, what what is a college pastor called in the Korean church? Uh, they're called chundosas. Or uh, usually, okay. uh, and, and if you but if you refer to them, you have to call them chandosanim, which is an honorific. Yes, uh, we for sure we just call them JDSs now. Exactly, yeah, just to make it simpler. And yeah. so you were a JDS while That's you right. while you were in school, and and uh, followed the path in some respects that uh, a number of our students have uh, have followed. So they kept you busy on the weekend. That's right. How did you manage your studies driving up to Orange County? Uh, and then coming back on, on Monday night or so. Yeah, I, you know, in, in looking back, I mean, I, I, I'm torn because uh, on the one hand, you want to be a six-day student. I mean, that's the ideal scenario. But at the same time, serving a church afforded me opportunities to exercise some things that I was learning in class, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. I mean, it, like speaking in, in public, you, yeah. frequency is so much more important than quality moments that you have. And so uh, I think all those things were very beneficial. I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure how, I don't think it was a conscious balancing. It was just like you're trying to survive. Sure. And so I, I don't think it was something that I set out to do well. It just happened where 
pretty much Friday afternoon, Saturday and Sunday, you're devoted to church work. And then you come back on Monday. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you're a four and a half day student, basically. Yeah. And you're just trying your best to keep up and uh, uh, do the best that you can. What do you think was the biggest effect on you of your time here at Westminster, California? For, you know, I would imagine the experiences of others are quite different, but I, I grew up in a Reformed family. Uh, I was fully conscious that I was Reformed growing up. I grew up with a Heidelberg catechism, and so catechetical training was not foreign to me. So what I gained from Westminster was not really a, a, a first-time exposure to Reformed theology, nor even like a time of growing conviction about my ministry. I came, I think, in some sense with both of those influences. I think in hindsight, there are two things that jump out at me. One is I, I, I've come to recognize the beauty of Reformed theology for the first time, how it all fits together, how a one element of theology fits in with other elements, and how to articulate that theology uh, well. Those are things I didn't know how to do at all. And, and, and despite the fact that I, I could recite the catechism and the verses, I don't think it was really a part of who I was. And to be proud of the fact that I was Reformed. It was just who I was. I was raised in Reformed theology, yeah. but it became a personal conviction for me during these years. So that was, I think, very formative. As a child, you learned the catechism? Yeah, I, was, I grew up with the, uh, initially when I was in Korea, uh, the, the, the teachings in the churches involved some forms of Westminster standards. Mm -hmm. When we came over to the States, uh, there is no CRC in Korea. Mm -hmm. And so my father was part of a Presbyterian denomination, but when we, he came over here, he basically made a decision to join a non-Korean denomination, but same along the same line in terms of theologically during the 80s. And mm -hmm. at that point in time, it was a choice between the CRC or the PCA. He chose the CRC, where, the lot, where a lot of Koreans were. Um, and, and so, yeah, having joined the CRC, we were exposed to Heidelberg Catechism fairly regularly. Uh, not as much with the Dort or uh, Canons of Dort or Belgic, but at least in our Sunday school classes, et cetera, uh, we were uh, exposed to Heidelberg Catechism a fair, fair bit uh, in terms of regularity. Was there some memorization even that went on? N not as much. I mean, I think the Korean churches are much more focused on Bible memorizations. Yeah. And so the memory uh, of catechisms was primarily the first ones of each of the catechisms, basically okay. Shorter Catechism 1 or uh, Heidelberg Catechism number one. I was going uh, to ask you if you could recite, what is your only comfort in life I and just in death? can't believe you put me on the spot for that. <laughs> that's okay. No, I won't. I won't do it. But, but well, it's hanging in my room if that's... Oh, that's good. <laughs> well, uh, you know, um, when, you're, uh, when you're a pastor, when you're old and, and uh, in a hospital bed and your pastor comes to visit you for the last time, yeah. it'll come back to you. Uh, do you think so? Oh, yeah. It's, it's in there. And uh, I've, I've made enough of those visits to know that... the. That stuff that's embedded deeply in, in people comes to the surface when yeah. it needs to. I consider it a great privilege that I have had exposure to both sets of uh, standards. Um, and, and still to this day, as much as I love the Shorter Catechism, Heidelberg Catechism is such, much more personal to me. It's kind of like the first language you learn. Um, yeah. For some reason, there is a personal attachment to it uh, that you can't shake off just by you grew up in a Reformed house, and so some of our faculty uh, did not and, and became Reformed, and some of our faculty uh, grew up in a Reformed home. What, what was it like? You, you, you've already mentioned it a little bit, uh, but what was it like to grow up in a Reformed home? You went to church 
twice on Sunday. Uh, you, you already mentioned your experience with the catechism. As you look back on it now, is there anything in particular for which you're you're thankful? I'm not sure if uh, the issue is particularly reformed, because even the second worship thing changed over time, especially with an immigrant church, uh, because of the travel traveling that's involved, uh, because people are coming from all different regions of Southern California or Northern California. The evening services uh, uh, were... Uh, Coming earlier and earlier. Mm-hmm. So we used to have worship at like 11 o'clock and then a second worship at like 2 or 3 o'clock sure. after some time. So some of those things are recollections I, I look back with fondness. I, I think there's one thing that my parents did that I hated as a child, but in looking back, I, I, I'm very grateful for, is just family time of mm-hmm. you know prayer and reading the Word, which was very regular in our family. Mm-hmm. With, with five kids... You know, my father, after some time, devised a way where, as we got older, um, we, we would sing a, a hymn or a song together, and then we would pray. And by this point, he, was, he would appoint, you know, since we have five kids, we have plenty of kids to go around, he would assign one of us to pray. And then I still remember, and then we'll read the Bible, but I still remember my, my father critiquing our prayers. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was unbelievable, uh, and I hated it. I hated it. But you know, often the reminders aren't anything significant in, in terms of you know something new. He would just remind us as we pray. Perhaps afterwards, he would say, "You know, Joel, your prayer was all about you. You know, yeah. you're, you're just talking about what you want. Is that really all that a prayer is?" And as an, a young impressionable child. That stuck in your memory, and so, so he used those as teaching moments. Then. Very much so, uh, very moments. I, 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 I still. Th- I mean, as a person who's now uh, a father of two, um, in in trying to be a good dad and a good father and a good husband, one of the things I look back uh, is is that moment when my father uh, would teach us how to how to pray and how to consider the reading of the word to be so significant that despite the busyness of life, we would take some time out of our family life uh, to read the Bible together. You know, I, I don't think that's a particularly reformed thing, but that was a very, very helpful thing as a Christian sure. uh, in terms of uh, those were the formative times, I think. What, what was it for you? Uh, what was it like for you to come back then in 2005, having studied here and, and now to be on the same faculty with some of, with some of your own uh, professors? I was, uh, I, 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 to be very honest, I, I, I was overwhelmed and, 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 and incredibly grateful uh, for the opportunity for me to be here um, to meet the famous Scott Clark. Uh, and, <laughs> Notorious. And, and, uh, interact. Um, you know, as, as a Korean American, one of the things that we do is we keep age uh, uh, differences very clear. So yeah. we use the honorific and we... We, we refer to older folks, especially those who are your teachers and mentors, and we keep them uh, on a pedestal. And so one of the most difficult things that I had to do in coming here was uh, to refer to people like Bob Godfrey as Bob yes. instead of Dr. Godfrey or Professor Godfrey. Just because, you know, at least for me, I, w- I so respected them and I so looked up to them. And for me to be on the same campus teaching with them uh, was great honor. and. Uh, and I, I, I cherish the opportunity to do so, and, but at the same time, it, you know, 
just they're still my teachers. Yeah. And 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 and, and w- without exaggerating, I think I probably learn more from them even now uh, than anything else. You were in the and between your time here at Westminster Seminary, California, and and then uh, coming back, you were involved in pastoral ministry. Uh, how do you relate that experience that you had in full time pastoral ministry to what you do now? I like that question a lot, only because I think my job here as a teacher is not just disseminating information, nor necessarily preparing them for further graduate studies, but preparing these men and women for churchly service, especially for these MDiv students to become pastors. My experience is very minimal, um, obviously, but at the same time, uh, if I can contribute to their thinking and preparation for their future ministry, I think I've done my job. And honestly, uh, Scott, to be very honest, I don't think I've figured those things out until this year. For some reason, things seem to click much better for me this year than the years before. Years before, I think I was so busy trying to prepare lectures and trying to fill up uh, uh, the space. I, for- I forgot how to organize and speak in a manner that might be beneficial to future pastors. And at least for me... Because they're preparing themselves for ministry, my experience is helpful not only anecdotally uh, in terms of bringing examples for what we're talking about in class, but even uh, formative in terms of how I organize my class. Yeah. You know, what is the best way to present the material and prepare the examinations for them? And so, for instance, this is nothing significant, but uh, one thing that I've done in Pauline, which I still I think think is right to do, despite the remedial nature of this discussion, is we, one of the things we have to do as part of their final exam is that they have to read all 13 letters and to indicate by chapter and book where some of these identifications come from. At least for me, that was very helpful as a student in preparations for my examinations, for ordination and otherwise. And aside from it, just preaching and teaching to have those that those books in, in the back of your mind, one of the things we ask for is an outline of individual books, uh, is a very helpful way to prepare for, I think, ministry and pre- uh, preaching as well. And so that's a very small example, but I think my ministry experience forces me to uh, uh, organize the material in the class in a way that I think might best help them as they prepare uh, for their ministry. And I, I don't think the academic work we do here is separate from uh, the ministerial uh, work that we will do in the future, and that we have done in the past, and that you're doing here, even in 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 the the classroom, you're conducting your your pastoral ministry. I like to say um, that we study while we pray, and we pray while we study, and we don't really necessarily bifurcate, even if we might make some temporary distinctions. Yeah, when you um, uh, you're a busy fellow, you're not just uh, writing lectures and and uh, preparing courses, but you're also finishing up your doctoral research, right? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Well, my work has to do with history of inter- interpretations. That is, uh, we're looking at how the you know different individuals uh, in in the past have looked at a passage and understood those passages. I'm a firm believer in the in, in the fact that here we, we don't do things ah historically. Uh, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And I still remember uh, Cranfield's commentary on Romans, which was very influential to me where in his introduction he talks about the history of interpretation, and he happens to be one of those rare biblical scholars who does pay attention to the history of interpretations. It's a short list. A short list, obviously, yeah, that's true. And in the introduction where he has maybe a 10-page discussion of why he does this and how he's going to do it, 
he talks about the fact that Romans has been such a significant book for many and that he's standing on the shoulders of giants and that whatever he says positive are based upon his reflections upon the past. And these things are in line with many of the trajectories already predetermined. And, and that was very influential in, in, in my own thoughts about what I wanted to do. And at least for me, I wanted to discuss uh, how the church over time has interpreted the Bible, focusing primarily on the book of Romans, uh, in this case just because I was interested in Romans, particularly chapter 7, which has been controversial in the minds of many. I was going to say, and no one's written anything on Romans 7, so... <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's a lot, you know, it's, it, there, there, there's so much ink spilled on this particular chapter, um, and, uh, you know, I, I have no grand illusions about uh, what I can contribute to this, but hopefully providing a certain angle uh, not as frequently discussed, which is the history of the interpretation of that passage at least for my dissertation, focusing on a certain period, a period that represents the, 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 the Reformation period from mm-hmm. about you know, uh, the late uh, mid-1550s uh, to about the, the beginnings of the 17th century. And, and uh, if you could uh, distill one or two things that you have learned in your doctoral research that, uh, from which you're benefiting, that you're able to pass on to the students, uh, what would that be? I think part of it is that there is, there's really nothing new under the sun. Um, and I know people have said this, and it's, it's very cliche-ish, but we, we often like to think that when we do something and when we think of something unique, at least in our own minds, we, we live under this impression that we have a thought of something that nobody else has thought of before. We have certain modern arrogance about what we know and believe. Um, but that's really never true. I, one thing we were coming to recognize is uh, that um, wise people and, and people that God has used differently at different points in time, there, there are ways of interpreting Scripture that has uh, uh, been trajectories that has been set apart, including Romans 7 or any other passages for that matter. In, in our Romans class recently, we read a book called Romans in Full Circle, which is about how to interpret the book of Romans, where the author, who happens to be an NT scholar, comes back and looks back upon his own interpretive method- methodology and, and finds great uh, uh, similarity with origin uh, from the earlier, you know, the, 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 the church fathers. In, in that sense, despite our own seeming um, um, belief that perhaps we are in a new era doing new things, there are already, um, uh, you know, ripples of this this work that has previously established what you're going to be doing now. And so I think it's a humbling aspect to my work that we realize that God has utilized different individuals with different gifts already, and in that sense, we stand on these people and their work. Perhaps the second thing that, at least prominent in my mind, is the fact that every interpreter interprets based upon the presuppositions and the, the burdens of their time period. And you really can't shake yourself off. One thing I, he- I read a-, a lot from contemporary interpreters is how they're theological in their interpretations. And, they, and it's a point of great um, uh, confidence that they are able to say, you know what, uh, we have all these individuals who write theologically and interpret theologically, but me, no, I'm biblical. I'm just following the Bible. Yeah, I'm just following the Bible. The ch- I'm, just, I'm, I'm strictly about the Bible, nothing else. But... I'm not exactly sure if that's ever possible, Uh, and that I think history has shown, and the history of interpretation has shown, that all these individuals 
who participate in this grand and wonderful task of interpreting the Bible are men of their time and 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 their culture, their ethos, and their uh, philosophical undercurrents all influence the way they think about it. And so this kind of separation between our theological convictions and biblical interpretation is something that I, I think uh, is... Uh, impossible for us to do. Would it be fair to call it artificial? If I were to borrow a word, yeah, I guess so, uh, in the sense that, uh, first of all, I, I just don't think it's possible. And yeah. it, it will be a, 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 a some kind of theory of interpretation that's done in a vacuum that seems, um, you know, in the minds of most people, a theory rather than the actual practice. So studying the history of interpretation has taught you uh, honesty about about uh, having presuppositions, about having a theology, but it's also taught you uh, humility, that you're not the first one to, to work on these things and, and uh, to, uh, to wrestle with these questions. Well, let me, uh, I know if I don't ask this question that uh, the listener will be unhappy with me. Since you're working on Romans 7, mm-hmm. they, the listener wants to know, how, how are you coming out on this question? Well, we have, on, even on our faculty, obviously, differences of opinion. And, uh, um, and, uh, I, I, and I think the discussions will continue. And let me also put as a caveat that my work is more descriptive than yeah. prescriptive uh, in terms of discussion. I guess two things I can say just as a summary. Number one, uh, something that everyone says all the time, which is that Romans chapter 7 is about the law. More than anything else, it's not it's not an anthropological discussion. It, it, it's about the law and 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 in the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of the law. That is to say, Romans has made clear that we're justified by grace alone. And and chapter six and seven want to remind us: not only are we justified by grace alone, we are sanctified by grace alone, and it's by faith. And that's the focal point uh, that I think Paul is concentrating on. Uh, but where the interest has been is the, more the anthropological question, and, and not, not that we need a drum roll here. At least, <laughs> at least for me, I still stand with the, I think, the traditional position, that it is, it is far, first of all, autobiographical, and that it's Paul post-conversion. Now, that may not sit well with a lot of people, but at least that's the conviction that I've come to. All right. Well, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot, but uh, I thought that was interesting and, and uh, might be encouraged, uh, encouraging for... Uh, uh, for folks to know that the uh, that Calvin's view lives and uh, <laughs> hasn't been swept off the field. Well, Joel, this has been delightful, and I'm and I'm grateful for your time and willingness to sit for this interview. That's it for this edition of Office Hours. We'll be back next month for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online, or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu and click on Westminster Audio. For more information about this podcast or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.